from WRHU in Hempstead, New York. This is Getting to the Root. We explore issues in depth and shed light on important topics that you won't hear on your day-to-day news broadcast. Covering topics of local, national, and international importance while bringing community voices to center stage. Hi, everyone. It's Ben Abrams. Welcome to Getting to the Root. We've got something special for you all this week. It's our first ever hour-long episode. For anyone who's been listening to WRHUFM the past few weeks, you may have noticed we're now playing two episodes in our 4 p.m. slot on Tuesdays. So now we're taking full advantage of that expanded time slot here this week. We're going to treat this episode as kind of a test run for more hour-long specials that we want to develop in the future, and we're going to start things off with our faculty advisor, Mario A. Murillo. This week, we're concluding Mario's four-part series on the second global workshop for indigenous leaders in the Sarayaku territory in Ecuador. We played the first two parts of this series a few weeks back, so just to recap, here's Mario explaining a little bit about this project. Yeah, the workshop that I did most recently in December that took place in Ecuador, in the Ecuador and Amazon, Sarayaku territory uh, of the Quichua people, uh, it was the second workshop, it's called the Global Workshop for Indigenous Leaders, which was spearheaded and organized by the non-governmental organization based in Bogota, human rights group called De Justicia. And they organize uh, international campaigns around issues of land rights, indigenous rights, um, uh, anti-discrimination uh, measures all across the world. That was Mario A. Murillo back when we aired his first two segments from this project. So here's how this is going to work. We're actually going to play the last two pieces from his series in rapid succession and then cap things off later in the episode with a brand new segment from our latest contributor. So stick around. Here's Mario Murillo. If you can talk to us a little bit about that, uh, the, the relationship that the Sarayaku have developed uh, with the national movements uh, here in Ecuador for indigenous uh, protections, etc., uh, and, and, and the relationship that the Sarayaku has played, the role that the Sarayaku have played in the national uh, struggle, because we can see that the Sarayaku movement has been a symbol for many communities, not only here in Ecuador, but around the world. Entonces, Sarayaku, en el momento que se organiza, En defensa del territorio, eh, considero que son dos aspectos importantes que se unen. La actitud guerrera ancestral del pueblo sarayaco y la parte espiritual se une con la ideología política organizativa. Entonces, hay dos generaciones que se organizan en Sarayaco. Los mayores espirituales, los yachac o los chamanes, con la juventud que ya conocía los problemas globales que acontecían en el mundo, en el país y en el mundo. Entonces, ahí, ahí empieza la, la, la cuestión organizativa. Era interesante que Sarayaku socializara en la ribera del río Bonaza con otras comunidades, de que porque era necesario la resistencia y la lucha en defensa del territorio. Y se empezó a dar de unidad, de resistencia y de organizarse. When uh, the Sarayaku people realize that they have to get organized around the struggle, that they need to be, be organized to be able to continue the struggle or to start the struggle, they have two things that uh, come together. One is the warrior attitude that they have within, that ancestral warrior attitude and the spiritual connection. And the um, and when the elders 
and the, the joining of the elders, the knowledge and the wisdom of the elders, the yakshas, the shamans, and the young who are willing to fight. And they realize that they have to communicate their decision and their willingness along the Bobonasa River. And that is what they do. Their resistance consists, and the struggle consists in three aspects. Unity, resistance, and organization. They need those three aspects. Entonces, en ese contexto, se une la, la población quichua de la región, de la provincia, y conforman la organización de pueblos indígenas de Pastaza, en ese tiempo llamado OPIP, una organización que nos representa a los pueblos quichuas en la provincia. Posteriormente, eh, figura otra organización regional de la Amazonía que se llama CONFENIAI, Confederación de Nacionalidades Indígenas de la Amazonía Ecuatoriana. Posteriormente, la organización nacional, que es la CONAE, la Confederación de Nacionalidades Indígenas del Ecuador. Y muchas de las ideas de unidad, de organización, de estrategias, partió desde el pueblo sarayaco. What uh, happens is that the whole Quichua, we managed to organize the Quichua people around the region, the people from Quichua roots. And that is the first organization. It's the Quichua organization of the region, which then leads to an organization of indigenous people of the Pastaza community, which in turn ends up being the National Confederation of Indigenous People of the Amazonian region, and then later becomes the National Confederation of Indigenous People of Ecuador. So it has, that's how it evolved. It is as if the Sarayaku decision leads to the possibility of indigenous organizations, of indigenous people and nations getting organized. Aunque hay otras organizaciones como el pueblo Shuar, sí, eran mucho más anterior la organización. Y también de los quichuas del Napo, la Foín, en ese tiempo. Pero en el centro sur nacieron, o sea, las estrategias de lucha nacieron en Sarayaku. Y por eso era importante conocer la, la, las experiencias de, otros, de otras nacionalidades. Y por eso venían líderes que ya no están físicamente, pero que conocemos cuando éramos niños y que, y que vinieron aquí a compartir con los grandes líderes, con los DH, y decir, mira, es necesario. Y Sarayaku se fue fortaleciendo también de esas luchas. Sí, pero también el Napo River. Of the, of, of the need of a national struggle strategy. That's what stems from the Sarayaku region. And that's what ended up permeating other organizations as well. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a child, all those indigenous leaders who came here, they're, they're no longer with us. Mm -hmm. But as a child, I remember seeing them coming here, discussing things. Sarayaku, tu canto es la selva viva que me rapta del tiempo como la carina que recita un clamor al viento, que se abraza y estremece por el arroyo de tus ojos. Y tu caminar tupido me invita a reconectar mi camino. Tu canto es una brisa que le ha dado cobijo a mis angustias. Te siento tan presente en tus hijos e hijas, que llevan la sonrisa fresca con virtud de sus miradas. Tu canto se refleja en las flores, en los colores que el viento plasma en las cuarelas del río. Y tu nombre grita su presencia dormida, mientras mis oídos se duermen con el susurro de las noches, que me llevan cerca del Altísimo, 
porque tu canto es tan vivo que hace estremecer mi espíritu. Déjame sentirte dentro de mí, como el agua de tus brazos fluye como miel, como agua cristalina que hace revivir mi alma y encontrar mi anhelo una vez más. Sarayaku. Como les decía, eh, en primer instante la defensa, la, la lucha será sido en defensa del territorio. Entonces dentro de ese proceso de defensa, Sarayaku ha tenido algunos acontecimientos. Y, y, y quienes han incursionado en territorio de Sarayaku han sido las compañías petroleras. Entonces, eh, en la década del 90, del 90 eh, se firmó un acuerdo de Sarayaku, se denomina así el acuerdo de Sarayaku, donde la asamblea eh, de Sarayaku decide no a las compañías petroleras. Posteriormente, dentro de él ha habido muchos intentos de, in, de ingreso de la compañía petrolera al territorio de Sarayaku. Eh, y otro de los episodios cuando la petrolera CGC, eh, Compañía General de Combustibles, de Argentina entra a territorio eh, violando los derechos del pueblo sarayaco. Entonces ahí es un acontecimiento histórico de, donde la gente, todo el pueblo sarayaco se moviliza durante eh, seis meses y logramos eh, desalojar a la compañía petrolera. So the whole struggle of the Sarayaku nation is to protect the territory. That is that is our purpose. And there have been different attempts to invade our territory and in the 1990s we signed what we call the Sarayaku Agreement. This is the assembly of the Sarayaku nation together who decides that they say no, they decide as a nation that they say no to invasion of their territory for invasion for the development of um, Uh, oil projects. They say no to oil companies coming into their terrain. And then different companies attempted, had attempted already to come into our territory. But then is when the CGC, that Argentinian oil company, comes into our territory clearly violating our rights because we had already said no to oil companies coming into our territory. And this was a whole process. It lasted for about six months, but we were able to evict, to push them out of our territory. Talk to us about how you felt when, when, when you saw this, despite the agreement that this wasn't supposed to happen, that you said already no to oil exploration in your territory, and suddenly you see them arriving. How did you feel personally uh, um, seeing that happen? Well, eh, lo personal, y creo que toda la gente sintió una amenaza a la vida, una amenaza a la existencia, una amenaza al territorio una amenaza al pueblo, una, una amenaza eh, a toda la gente y a todos los seres de la, de la selva. Por lo que empezamos a defender colectivamente, organizadamente, y tuvimos que ir a los lugares donde estaban las compañías petroleras, a la selva, donde habían construido helipuertos, eh, y tuvimos que estar en territorio eh, para, para poder desalojar tanto a los obreros de la, de la compañía y también porque hubo eh, presencia militar, que, que resguardaban lo, los helipuertos y las bases de las compañías petroleras. I, not I personally, but I think the whole community felt very much threatened. We felt a threat to our life, to our existence, to our territories, but also a threat to the beings of the jungle. And when we decided to push them out, to evict them, we had to move to those places where they not only the workers for, of the oil company were there, but they had already built 
um, heliports, military people were there protecting their heliports. So we had to go there to push them out and we really felt threatened. Was there ever a moment uh, during this six-month struggle and beyond that you were scared, that, that uh, you were not going to win, that this was going to be a defeat uh, of the community? Sí, eh, cuando estuvimos en territorio eh, y supimos que, que estaban los militares y sabíamos que estaban armados y nosotros eh, íbamos con lanzas eh, pero no con la intención de enfrentarnos pero el hecho de que la fuerza militar estaba armada era una preocupación porque tuvimos que caminar día y noche a los campamentos para desalojarlo y sabíamos que ellos nos esperaban armados Entonces la preocupación era evidente que iba a haber una reacción tanto de ellos y de nosotros. Y nosotros con razón porque era nuestro territorio. Entonces eso era muy evidente de que podía pasar, podía haber muerte. Eh, sin embargo, la, la forma en que nos organizamos, en la forma de nuestro lenguaje, de que eh, defendíamos nuestro territorio, nuestro espacio de vida y lo, que, y lo defendíamos eh, con mensajes de vida y con mensajes de paz era lo que lo que no nos no permitió a que existe eh, reacciones graves. Yes, of course. When we during that period of time when we were evicting them trying to go out into the jungle to find them and push them out of our territory. Of course, we were armed in with spears. But they were with the military. They had weapons and we knew what was at stake. We knew that there could be casualties. But we had a message to convey to them. Our message was a message of life, a message of peace. Seriously understanding what was at stake, our message was a message of life and peace. When was the first time did, that you realized that you wanted to get involved and become active, uh, part of the movement to protect the territory? Uh, obviously, you've been here all your life and you've, you've, you grew up here, but uh, just when was there a moment that you actually felt that this was something that you had to do? Eh, bueno, eh, yo desde muy temprana me dediqué al, a la música, al arte, y como un activista, eh, pensé de que a través de la música yo podía eh, también eh, eh, bien la música una herramienta también de lucha una herramienta de cómo sensibilizar de concientizar a, a la sociedad eh, de lo que éramos los arayacos de, de lo que defendíamos los arayacos entonces empecé con la música a, a decir lo que sentíamos eh, como un lenguaje de, de resistencia a la música como una como, como una herramienta de lucha también la música y en ese contexto yo venía eh, trabajando hasta que un momento eh, una asamblea eh, la comunidad me eligió como dirigente sin embargo yo vengo de un proceso de, de familias que realmente han iniciado la organización de Sarayaco eh, justamente a mi papá Raúl Viteri es uno de los primeros presidentes de Sarayaco y toda esa generación que conocí eh, también ya desde la familia desde mi casa ya tenía una, una formación política organizativa sin embargo me dediqué a la música y retomo eh, de, eh, mi papel de dirigencia so actually I started I started doing music I started dedicating my life to music I started being an activist through music it is through my songs that I intended to create an awareness a sensitivity among amongst others for them to realize what the Sarayaku nation was and this is like my music was a language of resistance and it was my tool for the struggle and it was then later at an assembly of the Sarayaku nation that they appoint me 
So I was appointed not being in this, in this line, despite the fact that my father, Raul Viteri, who was one of the first presidents and one of the first organizers of the Sarayaku Nation, despite him having been one of the presidents, I had chosen the path of music. Nonetheless, I think I had already in me all that instruction, all that political organization. And then when I was appointed, I had no choice. Entonces pienso que mi, mi, tengo dos, dos vías, dos herramientas de, de ser con mi pueblo, a través de la música y a través de, la, de, de mi dirigencia dentro de la organización política de lucha que tiene Sarayaco. So I have two ways of connecting and being with my people. One is through my music and the other one is as the, as the leader that, that I am, as the political leader that I am. Do you have kids? Sí, sí tengo hijos. ¿Cuántos? Eh, tengo tres, eh, un varón y dos niñas. What, what do you tell your kids and how do you bring them into this? Into this? It's, a, it's, a, it's a natural process, I would imagine. Bueno, por el momento mis hijos están en la ciudad de Puyo eh, con su madre <coughs> y están en una escuela intercultural bilingüe donde aprenden el quichua y también eh, el conocimiento occidental. Sin embargo, me parece que es importante y cuando tenga tiempo eh, quiero traerles acá para que conozcan el proceso de la lucha de Sarayaco y conozcan a la familia y que se identifiquen como Sarayaco y sobre todo que entiendan el proceso histórico del pueblo para que sean también eh, personajes, individuos que estén con el pueblo eh, en la lucha y que con sus conocimientos que puedan obtener, fortalezcan el proceso de, de vida de Sarayaco. So yes, I have three kids, one boy and two girls. They live in Puyo. They don't live here. They live with their mother in Puyo. And they attend a multi, a bicultural, bilingual school. So they have, uh, they learn Quichua and, uh, and Spanish. But I do hope in due time to bring them, for them to understand the culture, for them to become to embrace the culture, for them to understand our struggle, to be able for them to continue on with it. En la luna llena, germina mejor y se puede cosechar mucho más en abundancia. En esa reflexión compuse una canción que habla de amor. Se titula Amor de luna llena. El maizal sembradas en tierras de miel y sal. Paciente esperé la luz de un ser celestial. Injerté su corazón mis alas para volar. Me 
belleza de luna tierna Siente que acaricio su fin y larga cabellera Me da una sonrisa de luna tierna Hoy que me abraza con su alma guerrera Me bañas de huito, sagrada princesa Además, eh, están llegando enfermedades desconocidas. Nosotros en la selva tenemos medicina, pero estas enfermedades desconocidas no sabemos con qué curar. Desde siempre hemos dicho que no a las petroleras y justamente por eso en el tiempo del presidente Rodrigo Borja hemos pedido el título de los territorios porque nosotros queremos proteger la selva. Mi nombre es José Gualinga, soy originario de, de Sarayaco. Soy líder, expresidente del pueblo de Sarayaco. My name is José Gualinga. I am originary here from Sarayaco. I am a leader, former president. Creo que nos da una gran posibilidad al pueblo de Sarayaco para tener una, una imagen, un prestigio y también eh, tener esa 
honorabilidad de, de haber recibido a diferentes hermanos de distintos países como pueblos indígenas y eso realza más que todo nuestra lucha, nuestra resistencia para que Sarayaku pueda continuar con más eh, enfoque, con más autoestima, eh, sabiendo que no solo estamos nosotros, sino que habemos otros pueblos que también están luchando en esta causa. Well, I think it's very important. It's super important because not only will they help us disseminate the cause of Kausaksacha, they will make our cause known, but we feel also very honored to be able to have had the opportunity of hosting people from other nations, from other originary nations from across the world who have come and will help us disseminate and leverage our cause, and this will give us confidence in our cause. The event here in Sarayaku, this workshop, global workshop, coincided or overlapped with the COP24 sessions in Poland that just finished, uh, more or less when this session started here in Sarayaku. What do you think of the connection of what we're doing here, what the, what the community is doing, what the workshop was trying to do with the fact that uh, the climate change conference was happening and there's very little movement on that on a global scale. Bueno, la participación de Sarayaku y estuve también delegado en la COP21 del 2015. So I was, as you very well said, I did attend the COP21 in Paris. Uh, I was uh, appointed to go, and you know that in the COP21 in Paris, we took the canoe. The canoe was part of our way of showing, it was a symbol to show the world that we indigenous nations, we're not part of the past, we're here and we're present and we want to participate. And of course, now at the COP24 uh, in, uh, in Poland, things are moving slow. It is as if uh, nothing really is happening. Countries are not willing to do what they committed to do, uh, what it was included in the statements. The big countries, with, which are financially the strongest ones, they have too many interests, interests that go against them implementing that. And what we want to tell the world is that we wanted to tell all indigenous communities of the world with a canoe, we are here representing you, don't give up. And what I want to tell them when I look here at my community, indigenous community, when I look at our structure, what we are all about is about action and doing, about weaving networks. We're not here about crying and wanting and complaining. We're about suggesting ideas and suggesting actions and weaving networks. Construir y ir tejiendo. No solamente estar de quejosos ni de lloriqueo. Mi narración, bueno, mi poema trata de la nostalgia que siento de estar lejos de mi tierra. Sin embargo, al, al estar aquí en Sarayaco extraño menos. Y le pido a mi tierra que no se ponga celosa de que Sarayaco haya entrado en mi corazón. Vengo de la tierra del sol, la de eterna primavera y verano abrazador. Vengo de la tierra del sol, donde el frío solo se asoma tímido y huye ante el desamor. Oaxaca, tierra del sol, escucha esta emoción. No creas que te olvido ahora en esta nación. Sarayacu, así se llama, está en el Ecuador. Esa es la bella tierra que ha impactado mi visión. Es la tierra de la fuerza, 
de la energía y la pasión. Tierra de gente guerrera, comprometida y de corazón. Una disculpa te pido, Oaxaca, por no extrañarte en esta ocasión. Sarayaku me ha recibido como una hermana, como una aliada en su misión. Bajo el sol del mediodía, Sarayaku me acogió entre su selva misteriosa, un río majestuoso y un cielo limpio e imponente, cubriéndome del temor. Bajo el sol del mediodía, Sarayaku me abrazó. Entre el cantar de las aves, mis temores ahuyentó. Regreso a tus manos, Oaxaca, mi Oaxaca, tierra del sol, a presentarte un hermano que en la lejanía me atrapó. Sarayaku, así se llama, y está en el Ecuador, en la mitad de este mundo y latente en mi corazón. from Nepal. I'm representing an organization called Indigenous Peoples Trust of Nepal. I'm the founding secretary of that organization. Subha Gale. So Subha, just uh, we're here in Sarayaku territory in the eastern, southeastern Amazon. Your first impressions coming into the, the community on the canoes the other day, uh, what were your thoughts, what was going through your mind as, you, as we were arriving here? I felt that uh, as we were arriving here, that we were in this really lush jungle of Amazon that I've only heard of. So to be here in the, in the Amazon forest, to be in this territory where there are not many people, where there is so much peace, it's incredible. It doesn't uh, feel uh, entirely remote. I feel like we do have forests, although not rainforests like this. So I didn't feel entirely that I was in an entirely remote place. I did feel at home. And also I feel um, it's very peaceful to be here, to be away from the crowd and the noise of the city. Mm -hmm. So this is a unique gathering of uh, communities from around the world, uh, looking at uh, and, and spending time here with the Sarayaku. Give us a, some thoughts about you, where you come from, your territory and, your, and, and the struggle that you've been addressing for so many years. I come from Nepal. And in Nepal, uh, indigenous communities comprise around officially 35% of the population, which is quite huge. And one of the demands of the indigenous communities uh, has been for recognition of their rights, uh, self-determination, um, for greater representation in all spheres of uh, the state. So those are some of the demands that they've had. But we've not yet got the right to self-determination that people uh, in Ecuador or Latin America have got. So those are some of the struggles that we have. And uh, more recently, we got a new constitution in Nepal in 2015. It recognizes uh, our rights to some extent. However, it really uh, falls short of so many uh, rights uh, that indigenous communities had been demanding for a long time. So give us a sense of that. Um, uh, what are some of the major issues that you're, you're addressing, that you're dealing with specifically in the work that you do in Nepal? Uh, some of the work, uh, one of the most recent work that I did was related to uh, the impact of hydropower projects yeah, on indigenous communities because Nepal is seen as uh, this really, it has huge potential for hydropower and um, the potential of hydro power is second to Brazil's, I mean, 
so it said. Uh, so there is a lot of investment around hydropower projects. And since hydropower uh, is touted as, uh, as clean and green, so there is uh, very little resistance from the from different quarters of the society because it's seen as something that's necessary for economic growth and overall development of the country. And that hydropower happens to be targeted towards and, and in spaces that are inhabited by indigenous communities? Is that the, 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 the primary uh, confrontation? Yeah, majority of the projects are established or being expanded in places that are um, the ancestral territories of indigenous communities. So yes, it affects them uh, disproportionately. I mean, not not that not to say that other communities are not affected, if especially if there is a mixed population. Mm -hmm. So who are some of the actors that are involved in that? Uh, I would imagine there's state entities, but are there any international or, or, or domestic uh, private entities that are the ones that are perhaps most advocating for exploiting that resource? Uh, definitely the, the society at large. I mean, even I grew up thinking that with the only potential or the way out of poverty is um, hydro, you know, exploiting the hydro power because that has been in uh, the public discourse and in our education system. So it is uh, there, out there, uh, very much, you know, ingrained in everybody's mind. Uh, so, but uh, some of the major players or actors would be, of course, the state, uh, particularly the ministries that are related to water and resources, and also uh, banks like World Bank, IMF, uh, these are all big players. And we ha have uh, f foreign investors from different uh, countries like South Korea, from, and also we have uh, foreign banks as well. So one of the projects, uh, one of the research that I conducted had players like banks from Germany and France, South Korean companies. There are some projects that are really huge, especially if the, the capacity of the project, like, you know, we determine the capacity by the megawatt of power that they are generating. So the huge, the larger the the capacity, the more greater the impact. So I would say, nonetheless, even uh, projects or hydropower projects with smaller capacity, like 100 or something or 200 something megawatt, even those kind of uh, and uh, that are um, that are run off the river projects, even those. Uh, projects have impact, various kind of environmental impact, and also impact on the culture, on the livelihoods, on the life mm -hmm. of indigenous communities. And and the standards, uh, and one of the downright or like violations of uh, in the, uh, the rights of indigenous communities is that they, there is no consultation in this process. Whether or not uh, we need development or whether or not we need to go forward with the project is, is a, um, is something different, but first we need to have consultation, give them information. So that is that uh, that even that basic standard is not being met. So I see that is one of the the biggest challenges uh, that we face. I mean uh, that people are not being consulted. So I want to get to that because that's one of the recurring themes of this entire gathering the last few days that we've been meeting with a number of different speakers. Uh, uh, Mario Melo, the attorney who defended the Sarayaku, was one of the lead attorneys in the Sarayaku case. Of course, James Anaya, who is a former UN Rapporteur for indigenous uh, for the Indigenous Forum. The issue of the relationship between communities and the state and, and, so, and the movement. So Sarayaku happens to be one of the, at the forefront of the indigenous movement here in Ecuador, and they've been interlocutors with the state. Uh, is there 
an equivalent in 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 Nepal where we have uh, movement or you know whether they're locally based like Sarayaku or if there's a national movement or regional movement that is confronting state policies that are uh, allowing this to happen I mean, we do have the the broader indigenous movement, but the thing is, there are so many causes that they are, you know, uh, taking on. Like, for example, the rights related to their lang- language, their culture, their t- uh, uh, recognition of their traditional institutions. So there are varied kind of rights that are being taken on by the indigenous movement at various levels. Because when you say movement, then we have at really at the local level, we have at the national level, we have at the international level. So at various levels. So yes, we do have a movement uh, in Nepal. You know, we also have like a separate indigenous women's movement as well, youth. So yes, we do have that. What are some of the takeaways that you you feel that like you're getting from being here in this unique gathering? Not only, <clears throat> of course, being inspired and seeing what's happening in the Sarayaku community, but also meeting all these other leaders from <clears throat> Africa, from uh, other parts of Latin America. What are some of the things you th- you feel that you take you can take away and, and help you in your in your work that you're doing back home in Nepal? I feel like uh, we are here from different countries, uh, from different parts of the world, and uh, some of the problems that we are talking about is uh, very similar distinct nature but there there are similarities as well so i just feel like getting to know them and building this network has been you know one of the highlights of uh, the workshop for me and the other thing is you know just to hear hear from the sarayaku community it also makes me feel that uh, the right to self-determination or to get some degree of autonomy uh, over your land is really crucial to carrying out all these kind of powerful advocacies because when you don't have autonomy then you know what do you fight for and that is what is lacking in my country there is no no autonomy for indigenous communities uh, in my country despite the long resistance and the demands of the indigenous communities so there is also this um, I also feel a bit sad that you know we don't have that in my country because uh, the fact that you know, the Sarayaku movement has been so strong is also it's also tied to 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 the attachment they have to their land and not just the attachment but also the recognition that the state has given I mean despite it can be questioned how much but you know the recognition that they have has allowed them to uh, to take on you know such powerful actors like the oil companies Otherwise, it's very, I mean, without, uh, you know, like, uh, rights, you know, that are secured over your land, it's very hard, I, I feel. Thank you so much, and uh, I guess I'll continue learning from you in the course of the next few days. Sure. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Around the time we drank Wayusa uh, yesterday morning, and uh, I was struck with inspiration. And uh, I think I woke my roommate here because I was singing in bed. <laughs> and um, it's uh, more of a rap, it's got a rhythm. And so, if it's too fast for the translators, I can uh, give you the paper. Yeah, slow down. Okay. It goes like this. 
Feels like I saw this in a dream, but I can't find the words to say. I've been thinking about this life like every night, trying to get it right, and if I don't, then that's okay. Feels like I saw this in a dream, but I can't find the words to say. I've been thinking about this life like every night, trying to get it right, and if I don't, then that's okay. Holding on for so long, yeah, I just wanted to let go, yeah. What does all of it mean if we can't find the strength to say no? Yeah, this place is just taking away all of the pain in my brain, making it all feel okay, and there's no need to say. I should put my phone away in the morning and find time to pray. It's on the air, moisture in the atmosphere, and it's flushing my body of fears. No truth to dare, part of my heart is so numb to the fact that there's people that care. This life isn't fair. If you've been there, just know that I got you. Inspired by all of your people, the companies can't ever say that they bought you. Sarayaku. Those were parts three and four of Mario A. Morillo's Sarayaku series, recorded during the second global workshop for indigenous leaders last December. Now for our final segment of the episode. Digital privacy and security is never too far away from public attention these days, and nowhere is privacy more of an issue than inside the tiny computer you carry around in your pocket. Contributor Paulina Mostaza sits down with a local expert to discuss the recent history of cell phone surveillance efforts by the U.S. government and what's been changing in U.S. policy. The idea that the government, particularly law enforcement, as it currently stands in most cases, does not need to get a search warrant in order to obtain your cell phone location data from your cell phone service provider to track your whereabouts. In a highly anticipated decision released Friday, June 22, 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court updated Fourth Amendment protection. In a 5-4 ruling, the court decided in Carpenter v. United States that the government needs a warrant in order to access cell phone location information. However, the ruling does leave the door open for law enforcement to obtain such information without a warrant. I sat down with a legal professor teaching at Hofstra University, Glenn Vogel, to discuss this matter and why it is a vital topic to discuss. Technology is constantly evolving, and while the data that the providers are collecting today in 2018 is somewhat precise with respect to your location, it is getting more and more refined uh, as every day passes and could get to the point where it's carrying your cell phone will be almost equivalent to carrying a tracking device on your body all day. Professor Vogel had attended the American Constitutional Society discussing a controversial issue dealing with the Fourth Amendment and the usage of cell phone tracking by law enforcement. He provides us information about a case in Nevada which introduced this ongoing issue to the public back in 2012. What made me think of this particular issue was a case in Nevada where the police had used the cell phone location data, which is your cell phone communicating to a tower uh, and providing it your location throughout the day. They were able to retrace the movements uh, of a suspect in a criminal case and reconstruct uh, where he had been over a period of time and then use that information in the criminal case against him. And they got that information without a warrant. 
With the increased use of smartphones, he goes on to say just how powerful cell phone tracking can be. Cell phone companies、um, erect towers in order to collect the signals for the operation of your phone. In more busy metropolitan areas, the towers are more. Frequent. So, in those situations, metropolitan areas like New York and Chicago and others, they're able to pinpoint your location more accurately because there are multiple towers where your phone may be pinging or sending its location to, as it attempts to find the best tower for signal purposes. So, your location can be more precise. As we get into a more rural area where the cell phone towers are less frequent,、uh, the ability to locate、um, with any degree of precision your location starts to slowly fade. So, whereas now the idea is, in many instances, they can track you to within a block or two radius, and then in more rural areas, perhaps within、um, a few thousand feet in each direction or something like that. Uh, the technology and the number of cell towers increases and improves every day, and it is entirely expected and anticipated that at some point the tower will know, you know, what room in your house you might be calling from. So, while the the precise location may not be as detailed and fine as as it could be in the future. We're not far away from that.、What、really separates a cell phone is its portability. I don't have to call from a fixed location now. I can be calling from anywhere in the world, and as a matter of fact, my location of where I'm calling from might be entirely private to me.、Uh, and the cell phone company gets my number and gets my the number I'm calling, but doesn't necessarily need to know specifically where I'm calling from. And that also the government doesn't have a right to that without some kind of a warrant. What I don't think most people realize is that your cell Cell phone actually provides your service provider with your relatively precise location、uh, on an average of a hundred to a hundred and fifty times a day,、uh, and even turning off your cell phone does not stop your cell phone from doing this. With technology and its uses advancing each and every day, this issue of unlawful surveillance and tracking is important to understand. We do have a somewhat diminished expectation of privacy with the arrival of social media and people providing incredible detail about their own personal lives and activities throughout the day. With this type of a problem、uh, in these current cases, is that I don't have a choice as to whether I'm providing my location to the. Service provider. My phone is doing it regardless of whether I want it to or not. And in fact, the only way to stop your phone at this point is to not only turn it off but to remove its battery, which nobody ever really does. The Carpenter versus United States case landed a victory for the Fourth Amendment, which protects cell phone location information. As a result, police must now obtain a warrant before obtaining this data. Professor Vogel leads on to discuss the Fourth Amendment and its relation to cell phone tracking. Traditionally. If the police were going to track somebody's whereabouts,、uh, they would have to use some type of surveillance method. Whether that's placing a tracking device on your vehicle, bug on your car would require a warrant, and the tracking with individuals is just too cumbersome. So, the idea that now law enforcement can just ask Verizon or T-Mobile for this data without a warrant did not seem to me to be consistent with the Fourth Amendment prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures.
uh, historically with the Fourth Amendment and, and any type of tracking a person's whereabouts. The idea is I would know maybe what religious institutions you visited. Uh, I would know the people that you've been visiting. I would know maybe where you're going uh, as far as maybe something very personal to doctor's offices or you know maybe even something a little less innocent. Police would need to get a warrant to be able to track that. I should also mention that in most uh, jurisdictions, they do need a warrant. The police, if they get your phone itself, the physical phone, they need a warrant to search its contents. So if the police need to get a warrant to search the contents, uh, it doesn't seem correct that they shouldn't need one to just collect data from it through the cell phone provider. The third-party doctrine is used in many cases as a way for law enforcement to obtain cell phone information through banks, phone service companies, and internet providers. This doctrine states that there is no expectation of privacy when using your cell phone. Therefore, this information can be viewed by law enforcement without a search warrant. Primarily made for business and financial purposes, this doctrine is now a way to evade the Fourth Amendment. Kind of the, the idea where the third-party doctrine is it's a very old technology it was formed under and it's being forced into this new technology where it really isn't applicable. Uh, the third party doctrine is relatively old as far as uh, the law goes. It, it really was developed in the late 60s into the 1970s and the idea is um, it was started with both landline telephones and primarily banking records and the idea was if I'm using a landline phone, the traditional telephone in your house hanging on the wall, that it is understood that the phone company is collecting the phone numbers that I call and everybody who used the phone understood that because of two reasons. One would be billing, uh, because frequently the billing was broken down based on local, non-local, international, and also maybe in some cases the frequency with which you made phone calls. So that information was required for business record purposes and billing. And so the idea was that information was actually the property of the phone company because they needed it to conduct their business. Uh, the second one was with respect to banking records where things like your bank statement and deposit records, again, because the bank needs those for business record purposes, the third party doctrine was sort of created to say there are certain occasions where, you know, information such as my financial status or um, the people I engage in conversations with may not be entirely private to me because this third party, the bank or the phone company, also has a right to this information uh, as for record keeping and business purposes. Professor Vogel shares statistics on the growth of cell phone usage nationwide. 84 out of every 100 Americans owns a cell phone of some kind. 16 was the first year in the history of our country where more people in their household used a cell phone as their primary form of communication and no longer used a landline. As a matter of fact, 51% of American households now do not have a landline. So the use is incredibly pervasive. Um, and the idea that you have an option to not use a cell phone in 2018 is absolutely absurd. Um, modern society operates uh, in every facet on the ability to communicate rapidly, um, effectively over long distances. Uh, we use it for everyday life now. I think most people don't even know 
90% of the phone numbers they call. They just hit buttons on their phone and the numbers are done for them. People keep their health information on their phone. Uh, they keep sometimes their uh, passwords to all their different devices. They have photographs, their calendar. I mean, the, the cell phone has become almost a replacement for certain parts of our brain. The third-party doctrine presents a new issue in relation to consumer contracts when purchasing a product from your phone provider. The contract contains a third-party clause stating they have a lawful usage, any information on your phone. Getting a phone, do they realize what they're actually signing away? Uh, and the answer to that is we don't really know. I think many people have a general idea as to how a phone works, uh, but if you told them that it was providing their provider uh, their actual location more than 100 to 150 times a day. I think most people would be probably surprised to know that, and then many would be a little disconcerted about that idea. It is still unclear uh, in the courts as to what is the public's general understanding of how a cell phone works. You know, you asked me earlier about whether people willingly give this information up, and I said I don't think in many instances they do, uh, because the technology associated with this pinging for the location data uh, is somewhat uh, sophisticated or at a bare minimum there's technology involved in that process that I'm not sure the average consumer understands. Because of the complexities of cell phone service contracts, location service technology, and the little understanding from the public, a compromise is important to establish. Um, compromise would be to require law enforcement to access and get a warrant before getting this information. You know, my premise here, my, my idea is not that law enforcement should never have this information. I don't believe that at all. I understand its importance and its relevance and its usefulness to uh, criminal investigations. I just don't think the police or the government should have an unfettered right to this information without providing uh, the necessary required explanation for warrant purposes as to why they want it. Professor Vogel shares information about the beliefs some states have regarding cell phone tracking and law enforcement. There are a number of states that have already enacted some type of a statute or law that requires police to get a warrant here. States like Massachusetts, California, Maine, and a number of others, there's currently uh, nine states that have enacted a law that says law enforcement need a warrant for this information. And then there's a handful of other states where they haven't passed a law, but where courts have said they believe law enforcement needs a warrant. There is now a universal decision in relation to the use of cell phone tracking by law enforcement. The Supreme Court decision in the case of Carpenter lays a foundation of the Fourth Amendment and the rightful usage of tracking devices now to include cell phones. So it's, again, it's just a safety check that the Fourth Amendment was put there for this exact purpose, to prevent unreasonable intrusion into our lives and unfettered intrusion by the government. And by requiring a warrant, it, we're not really doing anything additional than what they've been required to do for any number of different uh, investigative techniques. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Getting to the Root. Today's program included music from Safi No, and our theme music is by Ryan Little. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at GTTR Podcast. You can listen to Getting to the Root wherever podcasts are streamed. 
or through our full episode archive at mixcloud.com slash gttr. Getting to the Root is distributed to public radio stations via PRX, the public radio exchange. Thank you.